0: buckle up and do it. If you aren't ready to make the choice, don't make the choice yet. But I can only say from my example, it's the greatest thing I've ever done twice. Welcome to Big Little Choices. I'm Shri,
1: and the show is about the amazing women and moms that all of us are surrounded with. Each episode will feature a woman that I admire and someone who has made a bold and unconventional choice because it's what's best for her and her family. This show is also about building community, so you can hear stories that make you feel inspired and empowered to make choices that are right for you. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today, Karen, talks about her journey from an infertility diagnosis to adoption. Not only did I learn a ton about how she thought through this process and about the ups and downs that come with it, but also about the strength and resilience you need to have in order to make that choice work.
0: I grew up in upstate New York, and then in sixth grade, we moved to outside of D.C. My father was transferred to a different law firm, and I have an older brother, and my parents were married up until the middle of high school, but my mother was pretty severely mentally ill, and so probably from when I was 10 years old on, my childhood was kind of defined around either sort of a sadness of who my mother wasn't and a shame of how can I keep people from knowing how dysfunctional our internal world as a family is. We were upper middle class. I had friends. I, it didn't, wasn't too hard for me to do well in school, but there was a lot of unhappiness in my house.
1: And how do you think that carried over into your years when you moved away from home to go to college or subsequently to work?
0: My mother ended up committing suicide when I was a freshman in college. So I think I was really blunted by a sense of shock um, for my college years and then throughout my 20s. But I did always hold on to this hope of, well, I was really robbed of having a, a mother in some real ways, I always assumed I would be a mother. So when my husband and I got married, we were still pretty young and dumb and working in New York City, but I always took it for granted that I would be a mother and that that would come easily to me. And when we got our infertility diagnosis, it was pretty cut and dry. Like, this is not gonna happen for you guys. It was a real doozy of grief in that I felt robbed in my life of both a mother above me and then the chance to be a mother to someone. So it was just a real moment of the universe is telling me that this is just a relationship and an identity that I'll never know. I just didn't want to be left out of that vision of having a family. And I'm sure part of that was some leftover pain of my own childhood of like, I want my own shot at having a family. And I want to be the cornballs that put like the decals on the back of the car window that, you know, mother, father, kids, dog, cat. Like I I just wanted to see what it was like to maybe have a happy family. I think we flirted for a few weeks with the idea of, well, let's go for that 1% chance and let's try. Let's take extraordinary measure measures and we'll be the outlier that that what you know imagine the 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 triumph of beating the odds. And I remember I had a conversation with my dad where I sort of outlined everything the really fabulous, fancy New York doctors were telling us. And he said, well, if you want to do that, that's fine. Go for it. Um, but it's not going to work. So if you wanted to to move on to possibilities that might work, do that too. And he wasn't trying to be harsh or a dream killer. I think he was just trying to say, what you're talking about is prolonging grief and there's a way to come out of the darkness towards the light. And you can either do that sooner or later. And it was a real clicking for my husband and I of, you know, I'd already spent so many times on so much time on infertility blogs. And it, to me, given the gravity of our diagnosis, it felt like this is the land of mourning and grief And at the time, I had a very naive view of adoption, which was just, you know, happy ending. And these adoption vlogs seemed like stories that were working towards hope and the happy ending. And so we decided to begin the adoption process. And our journey was sort of made sharper because a very close friend of mine at the time had just gotten her referral for two twin girls from Ethiopia and she brought the pictures of these beautiful little girls to dinner and the way we all celebrated as friends of my friend becoming a mother and the way we were already starting to picture these girls and plan what she should shop for to prepare and talk about her trip it all felt the way it sounded and looked when I went to baby showers of friends that were pregnant like it was the same excitement and the same sense of hope and naivete and joy and possibility and so we sort of followed my friend's lead and specifically after researching agencies chose to adopt from Ethiopia.
1: What was it like making that decision to adopt from a different race, from a different country, so different from
0: what you were not just familiar with, but what you were surrounded with? It was a big decision and one we probably went into naively. At the same time, my stepmother is black. Um, you know, I've been going to her family holidays and traditions for decades now. So I wasn't unfamiliar with black culture um, and i felt assured that any adopted child of mine would sit at a holiday table with people whose skin matched hers
1: i asked karen about any expectations that she and her husband might have from their daughter feelings of gratitude or privilege given her life in austin versus in ethiopia
0: i try not to compare the reality of her life to the fantasy positive or negative. It could have been in Ethiopia. I don't think that's really for me Mm. to do. And I don't want her ever to feel as if her life here is a gift beyond what I think any 10 year old, you know, should be humble about the opportunities in her life. And, Oh, I get to go to horseback riding camp and Oh, I get hardcover books just because I halfway through the series and the next one has come out. Um, But I don't want her to ever tie a sense of gratitude to, and thank God I didn't have to grow up in Ethiopia. We can't know what her life there would have been like. So I do know that when we sat with her uncle, when she was asleep in his arms and we met in Addis Ababa, that he said his great wish for her was to be educated. And so I do know and I do trust she's getting a high level of education here. And that's important to me to always make sure is the number one priority in her life, if only to honor her uncle's wishes.
1: So now that she's 10, does she know who her uncle is? Does she have any concept of her
0: biological family? She is just, she's a very emotionally articulate kid. She can really access her feelings of grief over the fact that her first parents died she can really articulate the confusion that exists that she has a sister here who lives with her in her house who she's grown up with and she has these siblings in Ethiopia who we are always messing up the ages because they tend to stay frozen in time of how they were listed in her adoption papers she is very proud to be Ethiopian and loves it when Ethiopian restaurant owners dote on her. Or she loves you know, seeing an Ethiopian runner in the marathon or she loves news of like the first female top politician in Ethiopia. But I think she also has this real confusion like Ethiopia is sort of this mystical place to her that isn't real. So my husband Tim and I's job is to save up the money to take her back to Ethiopia to, and we're hoping to do that in the next year or two of where we hire somebody that takes us deep into the Southern region where she's from and have a translator with us so that she can sit with her uncle and so that she can have that strange translated conversation with family members. And it will probably be deeply confusing and strange and beautiful and, Even if it's an awkward one or an emotional one, our job is to try to make sure there's a tether for her as much as she wants it. And right now, she wants as many people to love and to love her as possible.
1: When Karen and her husband were ready to add another child to their family, they chose to adopt locally from Fort Worth, Texas. Primarily because the Ethiopia program shut down and international adoption left a bad taste in their mouth they chose to adopt another black child and one where they would always have a tie to the biological family should their daughter choose it and while it's been easier for Karen to talk to her older daughter about her ancestry and biological family it has been much harder
0: when it comes to her younger daughter with my little one when she we first adopted her my older daughter would say when can we tell her she's adopted like she was just so excited to like break the news and twist in in your story but there's not like really there's not one moment of conversation and it's all messy. I noticed with my younger daughter in that, like we've been trying to talk about her birth parents or, oh, you know, your mom who carried you and <laughs> it'll be awkward. Like we'll be at a party, you know, like in our neighborhood and my daughter will come up to me and like, where's my real mom? Who's my real mom? And I'm like, I am, I and and I'm equipped to have those conversations, but I worry if everyone's thinking, Uh oh, this adoption is going left. So it's kind of or or we were at a party this summer and I remember this kid was like, You to my younger daughter, you do not look like your mom. You don't belong together. And my younger daughter was so confused and like kind of hurt and put out and she said to me later, like, he said, we didn't belong together. What does he know? And very, for me, easy of like, he's wrong. Who's to say who belongs together? And what does he know? But it was a fair, you know, her sense of her narrative is forming right now. And I think since this is my second time around, I have more wherewithal to just allow for it to be kind of clumsy and confusing. It is confusing. But I think If I could go back to my younger self, I'd say it's all going to be confusing and a little awkward, but what's not going to be confusing is how the second you met these kids, you felt like you were here on this earth only to love them and you'll do anything for them and nothing is going to ever sort of cloud that.
1: What has the general reaction and support been of your
0: community? I mean, I live in Austin, Texas, which is like the most like groovy kind of unquestioning progressive city ever for good and for bad. I mean, it's a very homogenous city in that it's so crazy white. And we've had to really fight for our community um, to broaden. And, you know, we've done very aggressive things like transfer our daughters out of their schools where they would have been the only children of color or Join a black dance studio where not only are they with a large group of girls who look like them, but also to where they have the experience of seeing their parents as the minorities in the room. So I think for the most part, maybe I'm so, you know, tired as a mom of two and selfish and out to lunch that I'm not totally keeping good track of people's response to us, but I don't feel like I travel through the world meeting hostility, or even questions of how these four end up together, for some reason, and I, I'm a very insecure person, but I don't, I feel as if the four of us are so obviously a family that it wouldn't occur to somebody in our presence to suspect otherwise, But I will say if I ever feel self-conscious, like I definitely spend longer on my girl's hair if they have dance class that day. I definitely um, more self-monitor if I know I'm going to be probably the only white woman in the room. I definitely, my self-consciousness pricks mostly um, when I'm the minority in the room and when I'm with other Black families. And I I feel self-conscious of, ugh, Am I doing this right? Do do their edges look okay? Do, Do I seem cool enough for this? Do you approve of the way I'm disciplining them? And I think that's kind of a waste of my energy, but also is a good window into what it feels like to not be part of the majority.
1: A big part of Karen and her husband's parenting is to make deliberate choices to prevent their daughters from feeling left out of their community, or being unable to identify with their own racial identities. And they're doing that by being thoughtful about who their kids identify as role models, showing them that Black is beautiful, and being deliberate about who they
0: invite into their homes and their lives. Throughout their life, like I've been cutting out pictures of beautiful Black girls or women, you know, even just illustrations of a Black girl reading or... Um, when Lupita Nyong'o won the Academy Award and was wearing that beautiful blue dress. And when I saw this cover of the magazine, I was like, ooh, that'd be great for their door. Or when we go to the UT women's soccer game, my older daughter plays soccer. Like, you know, it was so special that her number on her team is the same as the black female stars on the soccer team. And I was like, you gotta go get Chelsea's autograph. So I just always wanted... Mirrors, 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 to show my girls that not only is black beautiful, but that there's so many ways black is beautiful, and I can't do that just in platitudes. So I have to live that. And you know, when um, my younger daughter said she wanted straight hair, like you know, I did say like, "What? But you're so lucky. You have curl of Miss China's hair and Miss Yolanda's hair and Riley's hair and Ava's hair," and Nana's hair, and like just named everybody's hair I could think of, just because, despite my best efforts, my daughters have a white mother, my daughters have a white father. Like, when my 10 year old said she had a crush on a white boy at school, I was like, oh, we failed. But I have to also allow them their experience where race is very much a part of their experience, but their experience is broad. So I feel like our jobs as their parents is to not just tell them that Black is beautiful, but live that out in who we invite to our house for dinner, who we consider family, who, when I have a 40th birthday party, who is the guest list of people that come to their house to celebrate their mother? What teachers of color do they have? Like what, what movies do we take them to where we insist, you know, on there being a person of color who's has a meaningful role in that story that's being told.
1: I have so much respect and admiration for Karen, for choosing to do something that's incredibly hard and yet finding so much joy and meaning in that choice. I've considered adoption during many difficult phases of my own infertility journey and honestly never found the courage to do it. I was ultimately able to get pregnant via IVF but always wondered what I would have done if that hadn't been the case. It's a privilege to be able to have your family And what was inspiring about Karen's story is her ability to find that family and be okay with the messy, chaotic world you inherit by making unconventional choices. We wrapped up our chat with some final thoughts on the choice of adoption and what it means to her.
0: I, in truth, Anytime people take me to coffee or say they want to talk to me because they're considering adopting, I always feel such profound sadness for them because they're at the beginning of an unpredictable road. The beginning of the adoption process is is fraught because it's so vague and open-ended and you have no idea what's coming and... You feel vulnerable and it's a long road. And so what I always want to tell people when they're starting is it's hard and it's going to be weird and it's a little bit complicated of a journey. So spend this time really understanding what you're doing. Read narratives of adult adoptees so you can understand what big global mistakes people have made in the past when it comes to adoption so that you can avoid them. Like be smart about how complicated life is for an adopted child. Be educated about what you can do to avoid the common pitfalls that adult adoptees talk about. Trust that if you lean into the choice you're making, there's a happy ending at the end. If you choose to go on this journey, it's not going to look anything like you thought it would. It's not going to operate on the timetable you need it to. But at the end, you're going to meet a child who that you, you fall in love with and you're responsible for and you do anything for. So if you really want it, buckle up and do it. If you aren't ready to make the choice, don't make the choice yet. But I can only say from my example, it's the greatest thing I've ever done twice. And I can't tell you how delighted I am to have the two people the two little people in my life like I don't know I'm stunned by the miraculousness of them and I wouldn't know them if I hadn't made this series of choices and stuck to them and lived them through and risked it all going left or going badly I stuck in there and I'm so glad I did and not everybody should or could but it sure worked beautifully for me
1: Thank you for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with another interview and until then, if you have any feedback or comments on the kinds of choices you want to hear more about, let me know.